Ah, mmm. The first taste of rare bourbon you finally got your hands on. That's nice. At Caskers.com, we make this experience easy. Caskers is a one-stop spirit curator with an impressive selection of exclusive sought-after rare and household names in the realm of premium spirits and champagne. Discover the top flavors of the year now by going to Caskers.com and using code WELCOME10 for $10 off your first purchase. Get $10 off your first purchase with code WELCOME10 at Caskers.com. It's Wednesday, February 14th, 2024. From Peachfish Productions, it's The Gist. I'm Mike Pesca. A special election. Each election is special. But the elections, like the one we had yesterday in New York's 3rd Congressional District, are special in their own right because they are simultaneously overdetermined and overanalyzed. I understand. Let's say you're a political reporter. You need politics. You need a political race to report on. You spend years between the actual events. Sure, you could busy yourself with some legislative goings on, but you need those races. Imagine being a sports reporter, an NFL reporter, and the games, the actual games only took place once every six years. That would be the equivalent of Senate races. Or you were a sports reporter and Major League Baseball games took place once every two years, or there was an NBA game once every four years. And then on that day, when there were NBA games, all the teams played. And then you'd have to spend years in between trying to figure out what it would mean the next time the teams played. But then, every so often, on a random Tuesday in February, there'd be another game between, you know, even two teams not from your town. You'd pay attention. There are only so many games to cover. And that's the same with political races. So this race where Tom Swazi beat Mozzie Pillup pretty handily in the suburbs of New York is getting a lot of attention because voters rejected the Republican candidate who was endorsed by the same Republican machine as the last person to serve in that seat, a fellow by the name of George Santos. Those are chants of Swazi Swazi as the former congressman arrives and according to the Associated Press, the congressman-elect in this special election. AP just calling this race. It was a bigger win than even the last polls. Why? Well, snow played a role, but a lot of experts rushed on TV to tell you why. And in these cases, the takeaway is usually something, if the experts are partisan, something like, it's what I've been saying all along. Here was Democratic pollster Simon Rosenberg on MSNBC last night. Because what's happening in the Democratic Party is we're building the biggest political machine we've ever had. Because there are millions of people who are getting up every day and deciding that they're just not going to let their democracy slip away on their watch and they're going to work. They're rolling up their sleeves, doing the postcards, making the calls, doing the texts, and we're kicking their ass all over the country again and again and again. And it's because of the people of our party who've decided that they're gonna make sure that their democracies and freedoms don't slip away. And so big hats off to all of them tonight because this was their win too, in addition to Tom and the House Democrats. Look, they're doing the postcards. They're going to save democracy. It's a political machine. Voters will like that. And uh, it has to do with uh, the voters all waking up and saying this and not the fact that this was a district that was pretty scarred by the fact that George Santos represented them for a few years. Okay. You know what? I want to give credit to Simon Rosenberg. His theory of the case proved more correct than others. Here's Cornell Belcher another Democratic pollster, analyzing the results on Twitter. Quote, I don't understand how this, the results of the election, a pretty big win by Swazi, can be 
when every other news story is about how Dems are losing ground with every demographic group and how immigration is dooming Dems and how independents are leaning GOP and how Biden is dragging the party down. Oh, okay, I could tell you how it could be because this is a different race and a different district than every other district that you're talking about. Each district, each race, the candidates in each race are unique and they matter. And Tom Suozzi is a lot different from Joe Biden. Here's a thought experiment. If in the presidential race, Donald Trump were a black female Jew with an accent and Joe Biden was as relatively sharp as Tom Suozzi and America was Queens and Great Neck, I agree. This result would be something to point at and say, that's what's going to happen in November. Politico talking about the race in a headline called The Santos Stench, correct, I think that was an important part, six takeaways from the New York special election, got it mostly right, but in analyzing Swazi and his victory, they said he also bucked the idea that support for Israel is a big liability for Democrats. Swazi is not loved by progressives. Some even heckled him for his support of Israel on his victory stage. In the end, Swazi didn't need the left to win. Well, we're talking about New York's third congressional district. Of the 700 or so thousand people in the district, 117,000 are Jewish. It's the third most Jewish district in America. To not support Israel would have been signing your own death warrant. His opponent served in the Israel Defense Forces. There was no metric by which being anti-Israel was anything but political malpractice in this race. You can't conclude from that that Swazi didn't need the left to win. And that's a takeaway that can be applied to the bigger election or other elections. You can conclude that if Swazi in this district that was, you know, leaning Democrat by two or three percent, if he in any way embraced the left, which he didn't because he's not, that he was going to lose. Odd, odd takeaways. So again, this shows that if you believe Cornell Belcher's framing that we've been told it's impossible for Democrats to win, this is a data point to the contrary, then your eyes are open. But why would you have believed that it's impossible for Democrats, all Democrats, Democrats not named Joe Biden or including Joe Biden? Why would you conclude that it's impossible for win? It can be true that Joe Biden is doing worse according to the polls among black and Latinos. He very much seems to be. That could be the case. And it's also the case that he could overcome that or reverse that or still win. And by the way, half of the analysis of the people looking at the Swazi race and saying this is a lesson for November. Half of the analysis is don't trust the polls telling you that things look bad for Democrats. And the other half is the polls were right in New York's third congressional district. They all had Swazi up and he really was up. Swazi was running for a seat that was held by the biggest joke of a Republican. It is, like I said, a slightly Democratic district and it has been for years. But many of the following conditions will not apply in November. Some will. Swazi outraged Pillup by many millions of dollars. Something like that officially will happen in November, though we don't know about dark money. Pillup, the Republican, acted like a loon on the debate stage, a lot more aggressive than her opponent. Okay, something like that will probably happen in November. And here's the other part. We can't overestimate this. It snowed. That probably won't happen in November, but who knows? Russia, if you're listening, release the flakes. On the show today, 
I shall go back to the Super Bowl and try to monetize your time having spent watched it. Or if you didn't watch it, I'll get into how much you cost the makers of something called Lisa Frankenstein. But first, Bruce Hoffman and Jacob Ware are both on the Council on Foreign Relations. They're leading terrorism experts. They have co-authored a new book. It is titled God, Guns, and Sedition, Far-Right Terrorism in America. We shall discuss the rise of the far right. We will compare it to the rise of the Muslim Brotherhood. And we will assess the state of affairs as concerns right-wing violence. Here's a question that will be asked and answered in an interesting, non-dodging-the-question way. Is a revolution coming? Bruce Hoffman and Jacob Ware are coming up next. So you've heard me say, perhaps in an ad in the recent past, that first we make our habits, then they make us. That is a quote attributed to the English poet John Dryden. I believe he was the first poet laureate. It is poetic. First we make our habits, then they make us. Let's talk about the inverse of that. What do we do when we want to get rid of a habit? What about when we think our habits are, let us say, unmaking us? Enter a product I'm here to talk to you about. It's called Fume. Fume is not a vapor. It's flavored air. So what it does is it takes one habit that maybe you're trying to kick and replace it with a behavior that has the look and feel of that habit, but not the detriments. It's pleasant. It's similar. It's replacing a bad habit with a different, more positive behavior. And now, with all orders, you could buy one, get one on their cores, which are their different flavorings. You could stock up throughout the year, these cold winter months. Something to do, something to exhale, flavored air. So nice. And as a listener of The Gist, you'll get an extra 10% off when you use the code. Head to tryfume.com slash the gist and use the code the gist for an additional 10% off plus BOGO cores to help start making the good habit that much easier. Thank you, Shaka Smart. In the decades before the Civil War, slavery's grip on America tightened, but soon a diverse group of abolitionists, both black and white, began to construct a clandestine path to freedoms for the enslaved. Hosted by Lindsey Graham, Wondery's podcast American History Tellers, takes you to the events, times, and people that shaped America and Americans, our values, our struggles, and our dreams. In the latest series, American History Tellers explores the Underground Railroad, a covert network of secret routes and safe houses operated by men and women committed to helping enslaved people escape bondage in the South, fugitive slaves and anyone helping them face terrible violence and even death if caught. But for those brave enough to risk the journey, the Underground Railroad offered a path to the northern states in Canada where their freedom was assured. Follow American History Tellers on the Wondery app wherever you get your podcasts. And you can binge this season American History Tellers, the Underground Railroad early and ad-free right now on Wondery+. Plus. The FBI director, Christopher Ray says racially motivated extremism is a national threat priority commensurate with homegrown violent extremists. He adds that white supremacists comprise the biggest chunk of our domestic terrorism portfolio overall. It is true, statistically. They've been responsible for the most lethal attacks over the last decades. This is examined and explained in a new book called God, Guns, and Sedition, Far-Right Terrorism in America, 
It's written by Bruce Hoffman, the Shelby Coleman and Catherine W. Davis Senior Fellow for Counterterrorism and Homeland Security at the Council for Foreign Relations, and Jacob Ware, Research Fellow at the Council for Foreign Relations. Do I have to tell you the book is a Council for Foreign Relations production. I'm extremely excited to have both of these gentlemen on because I want to get into what they found, but also the implications, because I think that some in this country perhaps overinterpret very dire situations. Bruce, Jacob, welcome to The Gist. Thanks very much for having us, Mike. Thank you. So what I liked about the book's title is it's grabby, but it's not just a bunch of words to excite us. They all have direct meanings and importance. There's the God part, the gun part, and the sedition part. Can you quickly take us through them? Because they kind of come in order and build to the dire situation we find ourselves in today. Uh, That's exactly right. You're one of the few people who's interviewed us who's recognized that. In fact, uh, the title, each of the words in the title refers to a different era. Of the right. sweat. Layered upon each other. They never uh, they never jettisoned the old one, right? Precisely. Uh, the original or the, the, the iteration that emerged in the early 1980s, of course, it built off a long tradition of hate and intolerance. But the version that emerged in the 1980s um, was anti-government, uh, was extremist, was racist, was anti-Semitic, Militant opponents of tax resist of, of, of taxes, um, militant opponents of legalized abortion. But back in that period, at least for that decade, there was a very, very salient religious influence, um, often through a white supremacist church called the Church of Jesus Christ Christian, which by the way is still active. I was driving cross country this summer and spotted two billboards for it in Missouri. Um, So the leaders of the groups that comprised this movement in the 1980s, not universally, but the majority prefaced their names with titles like pastor and reverend. So that's the God part. Right. 1988, there's a major trial of 14 white supremacists in Fort Smith, Arkansas, um, on charges of seditious conspiracy, one of the most difficult charges to convict on in the United States. And of course, just in the past couple of years, uh, 22 members of the Proud Boys um, and uh, the Oath Keepers were convicted of, of seditious conspiracy. 1988, that the 14 that were tried on it were all acquitted. On the one hand, this breathed life into the movement and enabled it to continue, but it also convinced the leaders that they had to branch out. They had to seek a more diverse constituency. And in that sense, they then began to appeal to an emerging phenomena, which is the guns part of the book. And that were the militias that were becoming very common in the United States back then. And were organizing in part in response to fears of new gun control legislation and restrictions on Second Amendment rights. And this is exactly the milieu that Timothy McVeigh, who carried out until 9-11, the most lethal terrorist attack in the United States, the 1995 bombing of a federal office building in Oklahoma City that killed 168 persons. Um, He was exactly situated in the guns and this overreaching federal government and this need for a revolution to overthrow the existing order. Then 9-11 happens and the movement in essence goes quiet. And in in 2008, uh, two developments occur. Firstly, the worst uh, economic crisis since the Great Depression in the 1930s. Secondly, the candidacy and then the election of the first African-American president of the United States. So Barack Obama is given secret service protection, foreign advance of any previous presidential candidate. 
Um, and this really resurrects the movement at a time exactly when social media was emerging. So you have this confluence that really um, comes together as we see in January 6, 2021. And that's the sedition dimension of the book. I know, Bruce and Jacob, I'll get to you in a second, but I have to ask you, you're uh, a very well-regarded, I'll say legendary researcher on all forms of terrorism. Does the American right-wing extremism, starting with God and then leaching into uh, uh, sort of a worship of uh, weaponry and finally showing up as sedition, or I don't know if it's the final expression, does it parallel the rise of the uh, Islamic Jihad and the and the Muslim Brotherhood uh, becoming Al-Qaeda and essentially metastasizing into the Islamic terrorism we see now? Well, that's that's exactly right. In fact, in another book that I've written, Inside Terrorism, the chapter on religious terrorism, which is the largest in that book, talks about ex ex precisely as you've described this emerging trend where throughout the world in the 1980s, as people are lo losing faith in communism, as people are uh, doubting the resiliency of democracy, you find really in all corners of the globe, um, religion becoming a much more um, driving force behind violence, whether it's the Shia terrorism we saw emerge in Lebanon in the early 1980s, uh, that among other things targeted the U.S. Marine barracks bombing and killed 241 Marines, whether we see it in Messianic Jewish terrorists who plotted to blow up uh, the Dome of the Rock and the Al-Aqsa Mosque, Islam's third holiest shrines in 1984 to provoke a cataclysmic religious war in the region, whether it was Sikh nationalists, for example, in the Punjab in India and Pakistan, who were moving from an ethno-nationalist separatist mindset to one where the, the leader, uh, Bindran Wally, was a cleric, where it became much more religious. So yeah, exactly. This was a phenomenon that we saw unfolding throughout the world in the 1980s, but then has gradually in some places slowed down and others has remained quite resilient. I mean, at least in the Middle East nowadays. Jacob, how potent are right-wing extremists? If law enforcement fell asleep on the job, what is the extent of the destruction they wish to visit upon us? I think I have, I think we saw with the attacks of 9-11, the answer to that for Islamic extremists, but I want to know what it is for white supremacists. One of the really interesting questions I think that Bruce and I try to answer in our book is this question of how likely is civil war in the United States? Now that's a huge question. And, and we try and approach that in the introduction. We basically come down on the, on, the, on the conclusion that civil war is unlikely because of certain elements of capability. So we're not really a north-south divide anymore. We're more urban-rural and that will kind of nip in the bud any growing insurgency uh, or at least separatist movement. And we basically argue that the more likely scenario is something akin to Northern Ireland, where you have widespread, scattered, organized and disorganized violence um, targeting, in this case, what would be uh, racial and religious minorities, liberals, uh, cultural minorities, perhaps like the LGBTQ plus community um, that would be organized both among groups some of the groups that, that people have heard of, like the Proud Boys and Oath Keepers, but perhaps equally seriously by individuals. And most of the serious, deadly incidents that we've seen in the US in the past 
decade, let's say, whether it's Charleston, Pittsburgh, uh, El Paso, Poway, Buffalo, Jacksonville, just a few months ago, were this disorganized, mm-hmm, right. leaderless resistance, lone act of violence. And I think that that remains a very serious threat. The right-wing extremists, the white supremacists, I think are different. I mean, you would know better, but they seem different from the caliphate. In their heart of hearts, they may wish to have, they do wish to have uh, white supremacy enshrined in the government. And they might, sometimes they believe in the constitution, sometimes they don't, but I don't think they really want to take over. I don't know, but it doesn't strike me that they want to take over large swaths of geographic land and establish a government per se. They more want to be left alone and they want to uh, secede. Sure, they are also violent and they have hatred for some of the groups you just mentioned. Or am I getting that wrong? I mean, there's probably all flavor of white supremacists. Yeah, I think there's all flavor of white supremacists. Today's white supremacists, and Bruce and I traced this back in in our work, uh, operate a strategy known as accelerationism which is the concept of we're going to use violence to try to, or society is so corrupt, we're going to use violence to try to accelerate its demise in order to rebuild the world that we want to see on the other side. Um, It's never, honestly, it's never that clear, Mike, what that world is going to look like, who the leader is going to be, what policies are they going to orient, how genocidal is it going to be in that aftermath. Um, So, you know, I would push back a little bit on the notion that you know, they don't want a white ethno state, for example. I think they, they're quite uh, they're quite keen on that, um, but yes. it's a little bit unclear who would lead that. But I don't think – what I mean is I don't think what they want is to um, roll into the state house in Atlanta, Georgia and establish themselves as governors. Uh, I don't – I just don't think that – I mean, maybe they know that that's impossible, but that literally is what the Islamic State wants. Not with Georgia, but with uh, Baghdad. Well, it's not. I mean, you're hitting the nail on the head. It's not a monolithic movement in any sense. And it's not far from being the top-down sort of leader-led organization that ISIS or Al-Qaeda or the sort of terrorist movements that we focused on in recent years. You know, you're quite right. This is a different um, phenomenon. It's very disparate. It's cut of a lot of different cloths, as I described the movement in the 1980s. It's not so different now. But I would say for certain elements, let's say the most seditious, they take as their touchstone or as their blueprint a dystopian novel that was published in 1978, The Turner Diaries, that lays out a plan or a blueprint for how to stage a revolution in the United States. Now, it's completely far-fetched, but the author of it, was someone who had a PhD in physics, was not someone who was a dummy. He was the leader of the the American version of the Nazi party. And he realized that the kind of stereotypical, you know, Mein Kampf type of propaganda just wasn't going to appeal. So he had the, the right. idea of writing a novel. And unfortunately, this novel repeatedly has surfaced as a blueprint. I mean, Timothy McVeigh, when he was arrested just an hour after the Oklahoma City bombing, um, copies, you know, pages from the Turner diaries that he had underlined and highlighted were found in a folder. Well, that's how he, that's how he supported himself, right? right? He went from gun show to gun show selling copies of the Turner diary, this, uh, 
you know, um, kind of underground publication passed around to extremists that would inspire them. And now, sorry to jump ahead, but now that there's the internet, uh, well, I guess you would say, I don't know how uh, the Timothy McVeigh of uh, 2023, I think he would be flush with cash if he was as good as disseminating this information in our media context uh, as as was then. Well, uh, you know, the important thing is that up until a few days after January 6, 2021, you could still buy the Turner Diaries on Amazon. It's estimated that it sold upwards of half a million copies. So it's out there and people will doubtless turn to the online version of it now that you know someone's going to scan it and make it available um, because it's so hard to purchase. But it was the kind of thing that was, you're right, that Timothy McVeigh made kind of a, you know, shadow living out of that. That was his second job was hawking copies of the Turner Diaries at gun shows across the Midwest. So I don't know, you know, the the author whose real name is William Pierce, he has a degree in physics, an advanced degree or had, um, but he also founded the Cosmotheist Community Church for tax exemption purposes and is a bit of a nut, shall we say. Brings me to my overall question about this as this community, these people as a threat. They have a lot of arms. They have the capacity to kill a lot of people. So they must be taken seriously. But are they bumblers? Is there something about their mindset that I wouldn't want law enforcement to you know, rock itself to sleep in terms of the threat? But is there something that makes them very often not as potent as they can be because they are just so unhinged and divorced from reality? Well, I think, yes, for sure. We we have plots that, that emerge that sometimes fall apart spectacularly because of, you know, infighting or lack of training. But I think one of the really unique things about terrorism, the reason why we are unable constantly to shake terrorism as a, as, a, as a force in our society is that it can drive wedges between, you know, society, groups in society and communities. Uh, a lot of violence today is driven by something called great replacement theory, which is this concept that there's a deliberate replacement ongoing of, you know, white people in Western countries that is operationalized through immigration and you know, black political rights in the LGBTQ plus community and is being deliberately organized by Jews and Marxists and feminists. Uh, so a lot of the violence that you see today, whether it's at Buffalo, for example, or Jacksonville or Pittsburgh, is driven by this concept. Now, the problem with that is when somebody opens fire at a Buffalo supermarket over live stream, they might only kill 10 people, devastate that community, of course, uh, but 10 people is a relatively low death toll. But what that message is sending to the black community in cities across America is that you're not being welcome. Uh, you are not full citizens. You are liable to be threatened in this way. So even very small uh, incidents in terms of death toll, obviously 10 people is far too many, but even relatively limited death tolls compared to 9-11 in Oklahoma City, for example, can have these very impactful uh, messages and, and really drive wedges between uh, between communities and, and what we hope is a, you know, a multi-ethnic, multi-racial democracy. That's really tough to move beyond, even if we think they're all just uh, bumbling, as, as you said. If, if I could add something, you know, in writing this book, it struck me. Um, 
that is very similar to the early 1990s, uh, when you have you know profound distrust in elected leadership, uh, political polarization emerging, uh, and the you know the challenge I think we face is yeah a lot of the plots that we read about are in the half baked or even quarter baked um, category, and that's one reason why law enforcement has been so effective at, at penetrating them. The problem, as I see it, and I think Jacob would agree, is that this is a movement, especially in the aftermath of January 6th, that has become even more decentralized. When you think of all the, you know, the, the 900 people are so convicted, mm. firstly, many of them were wearing patches or wearing gear that kind of gave away what organizations they belonged to. They were taking selfies. They were recording themselves. The lesson is, if you do all that stuff and belong to an existing organization, you're going to be charged with high crimes like seditious conspiracy. So what worries me the most is that this is a movement since that Fort Smith trial in 1988 to frustrate law enforcement has embraced a strategy of leaderless resistance that we call lone wolf or lone actor attacks. And basically terrorists are always the consummate opportunists. When they see an opportunity to strike, like Timothy McVeigh, who carried out several reconnaissances of the Alfred P. Murrah building and realized initially he was planning that to be a suicide attack because he thought it would be so difficult to get close to the building. Then when he was surveilling it, he found out he could park in an indented lo loading zone just 11 feet from the building and completely take it down. So that's what I worry about is that burrow deep underground now. It's the lone individual or like McVeigh, who was working with very closely with one former army buddy and had enlisted for a brief period, a, a third army buddy, a former army buddy, that you just, you know, a handful of people can cause disproportionate lethality. And that's, of course, what the siren call of terrorism always is. Right, right. And we see that with... Um these U.S. shooters inspiring each other, going international, right? The New Zealand shooter cites U.S. ideology in killing 50 mostly uh, Muslim people in his country. It's uh, pernicious. Yeah, and it's not the only example, unfortunately, of elements of the U.S. ideology being exported. Uh, there was a, a shooting that occurred October 2022 in Bratislava, Slovakia, by a gunman who was citing Roe versus Wade being struck down as being insufficient for whiteness in America and needing to turn to further violence. That should be a real wake-up call. And it's not just ideology, it's also tactics. Um, so Brenton Tarrant, the Christchurch gunman, is an example of somebody who chose a specific tactical profile for the impact it would have in the United States. But in the anti-government space, we've also seen an election riot, for example, in Brazil, January 8th, 2023, inspired mm -hmm. by very similar grievances, conducted in a very similar fashion while the leader of that movement was in exile in Florida. So uh, we should be taking very seriously the fact that uh, extremists elsewhere are looking to the United States for both ideological inspiration, but also tactical blueprints. And that's a very serious issue for U.S. foreign policy and U.S. soft power at a time of you know, escalating great power competition. And let us hold our conversation there and come back tomorrow with more with Bruce Hoffman and Jacob Ware, co-authors of God, Guns, and Sedition, Far-Right Terrorism in America.
I'm not going to give you something for nothing, but I am going to give you something and it will take very, very little. So let's think about New Year's because that means New Year's resolutions. And, you know, for a lot of us, it's to save money. What you could do is you could start getting cash back with every purchase you make on Ibotta. Why leave money on the table or anywhere other than your pocket and your wallet? And that's where Ibotta comes in. Ibotta is a free app that gives you the most cash back every time you shop on hundreds of items from groceries to beauty supplies to toys. So you can make sure you're beating inflation, outpacing inflation. That's what we do. We outpace inflation and Ibotta is going to help us. The average Ibotta user earned $145 last year. Think about what that can buy. A big shopping trip. How about upgrades to comfortable seats on an airline or, you know, a game or concert? Other apps give you points that don't amount to much with Ibotta. Just add your offers in the app, upload your receipt, and you just get the cash. You cash it out in your bank account, PayPal, on gift cards, however you want to do it. Some of the brands that you could shop from include Lowe's, Macy's, Sephora, Best Buys, more than that. Right now, Ibotta, and soon I'm going to tell you how to spell Ibotta because it's going to blow your mind. All right, I'll tell you now. It's I-B-O-T-T-A. That's important because you need to know that Right now, Ibotta is offering our listeners $5 just for trying Ibotta by using the code THEGIST when you register. Just go to the App Store or Google Play Store and download the free Ibotta app to start earning cash back and use the code THEGIST. Please use the code THEGIST. They give us credit for using the code THEGIST and they keep advertising on their show, making us money, making you money. That is I-B-O-T-T-A in the Google Play or App Store, and use the code THEGIST. I'm here to tell you about one of the most attractive automobiles you're ever going to lay your eyes on. And it's not just how good it looks. It's everything that can do. For those who embrace the impossible, the Defender 110 is up for the adventure. This iconic vehicle has been redefined with thoroughly modern design. The exterior, which won me over, is reimagined with compelling proportions and precise detailing. The interior is built with integrity using the most robust of materials. The Defender capability is legendary, whether you're facing off-road challenges or harsh weather conditions. The Defender 110 lets you go further and do more. Cargo capacity means you got room for your gear. To drive the Defender is to do what you do via your intellect, via your passions in life. It is to explore with greater confidence. Ready for a wide range of adventures? The Defender family features the two-door Defender 90, the Defender 110, the Defender 130 that seats up to eight. Learn more at LandRoverUSA.com forward slash Defender. And now the spiel. Super Bowl was pretty good. You rely on me for this analysis three days after the fact. That's what I'm here for. You know, I was a former sports reporter, NPR, many years. Actually uh, left NPR. 10 years ago last week. And in all my time, I realized one thing, that you don't leave Patrick Mahomes time on the clock. Where else are you going to leave him time, by the way? Time in a bottle? Which I always thought it was a funny cliche, the time on the clock thing, you know, and a little bit picky. Okay, time on the clock. But then in overtime, there was a clock that was meaningless. And many Americans were like, wait, what's the clock for? If the clock hits zero, what happens? And the answer is they just switch sides of the field. But that wasn't really explained. That's okay. It's not like a lot of people were watching and you need to be clear about the actual 
rules that would determine the outcome of the game. So anyway, big day for Andy Reid, victim of elder abuse there, Taylor and Kelsey, Patrick Mahomes, and a really big day. I think the big winner, Jesus, did really well, apparently a foot guy. His ads were good, made me want to look into some of the stuff he's been doing. I've also uh, curious about Scientology, Reese's Peanut Butter Cups, and I was thinking of being anti-Semitic, but then there was a really compelling Super Bowl ad that told me not to be, so you got it. Right after I get some, some of the new Reese's Peanut Butter Cups and whatever car it was Christopher Walken was advertising, I'm going to get me some anti, anti-Semitism or pro, yes, anti-anti-Semitism. That's where I land. Nice ride. It's the real deal. 100% electric it's the real deal yeah thank you of course enjoy your coffee careful it's hot thanks the christopher walken car ad was well received and well reviewed now let me you probably saw it right makes clothes let me ask you this which car was it for which brand see That's the problem with all these funny ads, or a problem. Great joke. Oh, yeah, 30 Rock Cast Reunion. What the hell was it for? Yeah. The Wagon. It is fun to say that. Wagon. I guess you can't not do an ad with a lot of people saying, how are you? I don't know. Is that a good one? Is there such a thing as a bad, a bad walking impression? Yeah, that was pretty bad. But I'll take it. I could be in that car commercial for which brand of car was it? I know it wasn't the Kia. So I'm talking about the commercials because I've been thinking about the commercials. And I've been thinking about the economic impact of the Super Bowl. So you probably see it expressed in terms of the ad dollars that the network that plays the Super Bowl, CBS in this case, the ad dollars or Paramount, whatever they're rebranding it, CBS in this case received. And that's a good way to look into it. Uh, Maybe you're asking yourself, wait a minute, all the ads that they had, then the game went into overtime, did they have the ads ready to go? Well, the thing is, I looked into this, CBS had some ad units held back, a half a dozen, and these were like bonus units. They were pre-sold. They were sold for less than the $7 million that everyone else had to pay for a 30-second spot. These went for $6.47 million, so really cheap, and I would think the anti-Semitism, Jesus foot guy thing should have got in there at that price. They had five to seven contingency spots, and then, according to the news article I read, they called up their advertisers. They said, we're going Going into overtime, and in fact, overtime lasted 14 minutes, 57 seconds, they were able to squeeze another 10 advertising spots in overtime. They made about $60 million, $65 million from the fact that the game ran long. So remember with six seconds left when they decided to kick the field goal, had the Chiefs decided to go for the touchdown and gotten it, it would have cost CBS and the U.S. economy $65 million. And you think these considerations aren't at play. However, when I was a sports reporter 10 years ago or 10 years and two weeks ago, I would go to the Super Bowl every year and they would assign me certain stories. And the first year I went, I was very eager. Oh, yes, let me cover all these stories. And one of the stories is what's the real economic impact of the Super Bowl? And I would talk to a local economist. And what I would do is I would go to another event happening around the Super Bowl. There are all these parties for the Super Bowl. And then as a trick, I'd go to the zoo or the museum. Because during Super Bowl weekend, everyone comes in from out of town and they tout how much economic activity there is going to be. But zoos and museums 
museums always see their patronage go down. The people who live in the town, they don't, they sometimes leave town. The people come in from out of town. They're normally not going to the zoo. If it's a town that hasn't hosted a Super Bowl before, like Indianapolis, the museums and the zoos all say to themselves, oh, maybe we could have events and it never works out. And this is known as economic displacement. There is often economic displacement in the town of the Super Bowl. First year I went, I did that. Second year I was asked to do it. By the sixth year, I went to a Super Bowl. I was like, I am not doing this story anymore. I have chronicled the impact of economic displacement. Yet I am still very interested in the issue of economic displacement. And I read a story. So this isn't about the town that the Super Bowl was in, Las Vegas. And I didn't read any story about, you know, a dip in ate the hard way on craps tables while the Super Bowl was being played, though that probably happened. I read a story in uh, what was linked to a Hollywood Reporter story written up in LinkedIn. And here's how this one goes. Movies can appeal to patrons uninterested in Super Bowl pageantry, but not this year. The big game weekend saw historically low box office returns with an estimated $40 million in ticket sales, the worst in more than 30 years, according to Comscore data, you know, except for the pandemic. And then it adds, it's also the lowest domestic take in more than a year. The horror comedy Lisa Frankenstein didn't resonate as counter-programming for women, opening to just $3.8 million nationwide. Look, I felt that Hollywood Reporter or LinkedIn could have made their point without inventing concocting an obviously fake movie, Lisa Frankenstein, whatever AI generator could have done better. Lisa Frankenstein? Come on, they'd have us believe that such a movie was being foisted on the American public. Oh, but foist they did, and they were foisted by their own petard. But I got interested in the numbers there. There was an estimated $40 million in ticket sales, the worst in more than 40 years. So I looked up this 40 million, how much did they expect? And it's hard to know, but here's a good benchmark. Last year, 52 million was made at the box office. The actual, this is from therap.com. Industry estimates have overall totals for the weekend sinking to $42 million, down 20% from the 52 million recorded during last year's Super Bowl weekend. All right. 10 million fewer dollars. NATO, which not only drops bombs, but bombs of knowledge about how much it costs to go to a movie. In this case, the NATO is the National Association of Theater Owners. They give an estimate of what the price of a theater ticket is in America. It's $10.50. So we can calculate roughly a million fewer people to make up that gap of $10 million. A million fewer people went to the movies than would have in another year or with different movies or maybe with a less compelling Taylor Swift adjacent event. 10 million fewer dollars for the box office. That's displacement. 1 million fewer people going to the box office. And let's say they watch the game. That's the assumption or analysis that they weren't just not interested in the box office. They were interested in the Super Bowl. Super Bowl outdrew this Lisa Frankenstein thing. Now, a million people isn't worth nothing to the NFL. It's not as if you just subtract 10 million from the ledger. A million people and a million eyeballs, that's worth something to advertisers, but how much? So this got me into the calculation, and I'll quickly go through it. How much is each set of eyeballs, or in the case of monoocular individuals, an eyeball, if it's the only eyeball in the face, how much is each eyeball worth to advertisers? So... 
A Super Bowl spot, 30 seconds, cost $7 million. There were an estimated 129 million people watching the Super Bowl. You do the math, and the rate, which is the CPM, cost per mille, gets confusing. Mille means thousand. The cost per mille is 55. For every thousand people, advertisers will pay about $50, $55 to reach their eyeballs. So you were one thousandth of $55, your eyeballs were worth that to an advertiser. However, there are 60, or with overtime, over 60 spots aired. You do all the math, and your set of eyes, everyone's set of eyes on the Super Bowl is worth $3. That's how much you were worth to advertisers to watch the Super Bowl. The million people who watched the Super Bowl and didn't go to the movies cost the movies $10 million, but they added $3 million to the penurious organization that is Paramount Plus that after the Super Bowl did cut a few hundred jobs in a restructuring, even though the Super Bowl went into overtime. So I hope you enjoyed the game. I hope you got into Jesus and his foot washing thing. I hope you're against anti-Semitism and I hope you're proud and you know that you have value and worth, and that worth is $3 less if you parlay to Travis Kelsey anytime touchdown with the over-under. And that's it for today's show. Corey War is the producer of The Gist. Joel Patterson's the senior producer. Quaint Mallards, do you want to know why they call them that? Check out this QR code for the answer. Michelle Pesca is in charge of special projects for Peachfish Productions. The Gist is presented in collaboration with Lipson's AdvertiseCast. For advertising inquiries, go to AdvertiseCast.com slash The Gist. Oomperoo, Jeeperoo, Dooperoo. Thanks for listening. He's here. Uh, Fleck on the track. What up, Bronx? For your consideration, here comes the Boston Massacre. The Dunk Keys. Touchdown, Tommy on them keys. Player coach. Got it. I'm open. And need no introduction, my partner. Sometimes it's really hard to be your friend. You said you were gonna support me. Don't go away. My heart, why you don't